So, so we're we're here to find drinking snacks, which is and tell me the name of the market again. This is Wararot Market. We're not eating catfish with our drinks, but there they are wiggling in the. Oh, that's like if instead of drinking we were taking some sort of hallucinogen. <laughs> then I would exactly but then, see but then that. We wouldn't be actually happy. No. On the hallucinogen to see a wriggling catfish. Right? No, no. It's like not with the doctor or the no. no, that's. So, what are Thai drinking snacks? Like, how do they. Kind of anything, because people don't eat without. I mean, people don't drink without eating. So, things here. This is so hard to decide. The problem with Thailand and food is that there's always food within five minutes. Um, if there's people, there's food. But also, there's so much choice that. Your eyes are always bigger than your stomach. You know, I mean, it's just, you can feel it happening as you shop. I would not be the first person to admit having fallen deeply, darkly in love with the markets of Southeast Asia. There's just something about the slurry of exhaust and sticky air and stickier rice, knockoff Premier League kits, fresh fruit and dried worms, wild lime leaves, mango hawkers and sausage mongers. They all hit you in all the senses they imprint right on your brain. And nobody has helped me decode that imprint and make sense of those markets more than Naomi Duguid, a guide, savant, author, and all-around bridge from west to east. Naomi basically invented one of my favorite types of book, the Wandering Anthropological Journalistic Cookbook, with classics like Hot, Sour, Salty, Sweet, Rivers of Flavor, and Taste of Persia. Of all the places she could have settled on Earth, she settled here in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where she still lives half the year. Which is why a month ago, oh so thirsty at the very end of dry January, it was Naomi I chose to break the fast with, with fermented sticky rice wine and that delightfully downmarket thing they call Thai whiskey, but which is actually rum. Before we have that sip though, a bit of podcast news that I'm very excited about. We are joining Luminary Premium, it's a new platform with exclusive shows ranging from some of the top podcasters you know and love all the way down to this show, which I am so gratified and a little surprised that you're listening to now. There's still plenty of time to join up before we make the move, and at the end of this episode, we'll have a special offer for early adopters. And now, let's drink. This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. I have to say, I feel... Um, completely indulgent to be here, you know, breaking the fast in Chiang Mai with some extraordinary liquor and extraordinary people. It feels like very uh, ornately festive to be yeah, breaking dry January like this. Yeah, it's a sort of curated end of, end of you know, <laughs> like, right. let's, let's manage this, right? Is this thing that we're about to drink good enough to be sober for 30 days you know without the gimmick of dry january could i do a down payment of some sort of abstinence to to get here to earn it well yeah. i think you've you've earned the flight by doing dry january and then the flight to whatever. that is true yeah yeah so there you go um so what are we drinking it's a not really a liquor because it's a it's a fermented rice drink it's alcoholic because rice is fermented for 30 days. A little yeast and sticky rice. And it's made in a village, made by the friend of a friend of mine, in a village near Phang, up north of Chiang Mai, a couple of hours, two and a half hours. And it has this extraordinary, I don't know whether it's because there's lychee orchards around there, but it has a sort of an almost slightly fruity, aromatic taste. But it's just made out of yeast and sticky rice. Incredible. 
No, that's uh, that's the nose on it. All right, let's see how. Cheers, Nathan. <laughs> um, I'm gonna make a mess now. Wow. Yep. That's super good. It's like, um, it is like sake, but if you took, you know how they have like the, the cloudy sakes and stuff. This is unfiltered sake. Yeah. Right? If you yeah. <laughs> if you took like unfiltered, I don't know, it's almost like the natural wine version of sake. Yes. It's like yeah, yeah. heavy and funky and incredibly delicious. It starts at sake and ends in a very Somewhere else. different place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's it called? What is this? It's called Lao Nam Kao. And so, cow being rice. So, I don't know, it's like, I don't know if this is right, but sort of like old water rice, but it's really, it's really good. I don't know. It's really um, delicious. They could have a branding yeah. problem with old water rice. <laughs> That's right. For sure. But, you know, we, they could stylize the label. You know? <laughs> but I think that it's not stable. You know, I mean, you keep it in the refrigerator because you don't want it to go fizzy and crazy, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's sort of like um, one of those craft brew beers or something where, you know, you drink it soon, yeah. and you keep it, or you refrigerate it to keep it stable. I we're grateful for our friends that give us these presents. I, you know, I, I can imagine. But there is something pretty special about going somewhere and just having a drink that you could not get anywhere else. Right. And you're right. This strikes me as very unstable. This strikes me if I tried to smuggle a bottle of this on a plane. <laughs> right, exactly. And and also because sticky rice is the staple rice up here, you are drinking the taste of here. It's not just made here, but it's made from something that people depend on here. It's their daily bread. You are known for, and I think you probably created the genre, the something of the world that we inhabit at our best at Roads and Kingdoms, which is this sense of borderless cuisine that you can travel and follow flavors that will cross from country to country. And you've done this in Rivers of Flavor or Taste of Persia, where you're not actually just staying in Burma or... Iran, but branching out and seeing, you know, what they borrowed from their neighbors, what they gave back. It also means that you've traveled immensely and deeply. And when I've seen you travel, it's been the kind of travel that I aspire to. But no, just the sense that your um, your path has gone to so many different places. You could be anywhere. Why not Isfahan? Why why mm. not Tbilisi? Like why Chiang Mai? I mean. This is just so geopolitically interesting as a location. It's it's a window on a whole lot of things. So that's part of it. And it's livable. And it's, it's so familiar. And eventually home is a place where, I mean, moving around and being somewhere, you're alert and you want to make yourself feel at home wherever you are. That's at least my goal. But home is a place that you, you know over time in a way and that's familiar. And where you're not having to work hard at feeling comfortable every day. How long have you been here kind of, Deeply. Well, I uh, we bought the apartment that I have now in two thousand and six. Hmm. Yeah, and so I first came and saw it. First, you know, slept in it kind of in two thousand and six on my way to flying into China to go to Tibet because I was working on Beyond the Great Wall, and it was just an amazing thing to think. Wow, I have a base in Chiang Mai that's not a hotel room. How exciting is that? You know, in this New Yorker profile of you, which just... Jane Kramer. <laughs> which Jane Kramer wrote, I, I have no idea how you feel about the piece. I just love reading it. I read it again recently. Yeah. It's 19 years old now. But it's this great look at a, 
a traveler in how how you came to be doing the things you're doing and and you had this great kind of explanation at some point of having been in a country unintroduced <laughs> you know relying on serendipity for mm-hmm. all of your things that's also taxing um, I mean oh, yeah. it seems well you know that but you because you've done a lot of that but I'm see I'm not, not as a, much as you I'm not a journalist so I don't have the pressure of having to master the place. I don't have the pressure of having to master the facts. I get to be there, and yeah, I don't have an introduction. I want to let serendipity happen. I think being vulnerable, and if you're a working journalist and you're going somewhere, whether it's Mosul or Tbilisi or Chiang Mai, to get a story, you have to get it in a certain time and you have to deliver it. So I get the luxury of just being taxed. So I can be tired, but I don't feel squeezed. And I think they're, they're different. So I think I have an easy, I am lucky. It is luxurious. It is un- wonderfully luxurious. But you left a, a great job in Toronto to go and do all the things that you were just talking about, to be present and ready for whatever happens. But your sense of calm going through these, and you're not from this culture either, so you're you're coming from a North American... No, I'm North an ignorant American. outsider. I'm an ignorant outsider, absolutely. So I do this thing called Immerse Through, and I just do it once a year, and it's... You know, I don't advertise it and la la la. So it's people are sort of self-select. They're prepared to come and go to a market, different market each day. Come and hand cook using hand tools, traditional hand tools. I'm not the teacher. I'm just the go-between. My Thai friend Fern is the other go-between, and her mother, who's from a village in northern Thailand, teaches two of the days, and then a Pao woman teaches one. That's and, an ethnic group. Yeah, it's an ethnic group that's in Burma and was and around here a bit. And then we go up to Fern's farm and we do Kokshan food, Thai food. So it's really cultural immersion through food. I was taking trips into Burma once a year, but I'm not doing that right now. Mm-hmm. And, and also every time I do an immerse trip, it's been 10 years now I've been doing the ones in Thailand, I learn something. Even if we're making the same recipe next year, there's always stuff to learn. It's really interesting. But I'm not going to be master of the North Thai culinary universe. What I'm doing is swimming in it, and I'm always prepared to say I don't know. I have, uh, this year, I guess, Americans. Most years I have Canadian, American, uh, might have an Australian, and Japanese. I had somebody from Brazil once. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a nice mixed lot. Small group, so it's very hands-on, intimate. Do you get their energy levels in the right place? Can you do that after a week? They just engage. It's really fabulous. And I think it's because, for example, Fern's mother, who's well into her 70s, she's got a clarity about how you do it. And my trouble early on was to get her not to do the work. No, I get her to sort of say, show with the stone mortar, do this, and then say, may, you know, please, you know, stop. They have to do it. And now she has learned that if she stops, she's, she finds a way of stopping, which is that she's entertained by watching them do it. I don't mean she's rolling over the floor laughing, but she's, she enjoys watching them find their way. It's really fun because this growing appreciation and sort of respect for, appreciation of and respect for what cooks in Thailand are doing every day. Do you, when you're writing your books, do you keep them in mind? you now have faces to go along with your presumed reader? Um, sort That's of. a really good question. Yeah, well, you know, things like Instagram and so on, I mean, that didn't exist before. You're writing and you're sort of, who am I writing for? I'm sort of talking to someone in my kitchen when I'm writing the books, I think. Um, and now 
No, I don't think so. I think I'm still just talking to people in my kitchen, you know. I'm sort of chatting but as I do also, something, you It's know? also true that you're now bringing strangers, or have been for the last yeah, decade, yeah, yeah. into yeah. your kitchen or yeah. creating a kitchen Yeah, but it's experience. still that same thing. And it's so, yeah, sometimes there's food professionals. Um, sometimes people who are just food-obsessed or food-interested. Um, you have to have a certain, you know, geeky or, or obsessive streak. You're flying to Thailand to want to spend a whole week with me cooking and eating. One of the people who's with me this year said... I don't think I've ever eaten this much. <laughs> you know. Great. And we, we yeah. looked at her smiling and said, yeah, and have some more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I will, she what's said. The, what's but, the you know, what's here? the problem here? Yeah. Um, speaking of which, it's uh, it's no good if, uh, if, if, if dry January turns into only moderately uh, uh, wettened uh, February. So let's, let's get another serving. Let's get another of, serving. Yeah. I think I like it. You, you got your little, well, you know, I know you were unsure about it before. And that's, <laughs> right. Actually, you were doing Dry January to, to check and see whether you cared enough to resume. To resume, yeah. Right. Right. Although I did, uh, a friend of mine did point out when I had mentioned that, it was like, oh, well, I drank so much less over the year. Um, because I did during January, and it's like, no, that's not the fucking point. Like, yeah, what's your? And we should point out that this um, local liquor is in a Thai whiskey, Thai rum, Sang Son bottle. You know, it's homemade liquor, but it's in a, it's in a. So this uh, is a very Georgian style. It's like it's you, put yeah, you put a liquor into the bottle that belonged to something yes, else, and exactly. that's how you know yeah, it's good. Exactly. Oh, that's Those little thimbleful drinks. Mm. Yeah, it's really got life, hasn't it? Special. Layers and layers. Yeah. yeah. So the question is, how are you gonna? survive the jet lag thing for the next how are you going to make it without falling asleep in, in I, midstream I, I, until I, you get on the plane on Sunday is it two who, days from now you're who was it that was, I think it was Laurie Wolliver who is a writer and a friend and, and had been uh, Bourdain's assistant was talking at some point about how Bourdain just said he didn't believe in jet lag Yeah. you know I was really like telling myself that as a mantra coming into this uh, as I emailed you at you know two mm. thirty this morning yes. wide awake mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like oh fuck it he was just either either he was from another planet or you know he was or he happy. didn't sleep anyway or, or something but um, it's a very unmistakable feeling of waking up at two thirty and just being like it's time for lunch. <laughs> I'm wired, I'm wired, yeah. I'm wired, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've never flown 25 hours before without drinking alcohol, so I actually probably feel a little better than I would have mm-hmm. uh, if I'd done my usual th- Narcot- throwing down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the anesthesia of plane travel, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, no, it's great, and I'm, I've been just, like, genuinely happy to be here. I've yeah. actually never been to Chiang Mai before, um, but I did spend a month in Chinatown in Bangkok once, and, you know, obviously we, we had met in Myanmar, and, and mm-hmm. uh, this is a ridiculously special part of the earth, mm-hmm. and it's quite unmistakable when you're here, even yeah. even for a day. The air, the, the softness of the air is incredible. Really unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been trying to lean into that because, you know, this is like exactly the sort of trip that could either leave you really disassociated from the joy of travel because it's so brutal and transactional to fly across the world for four days, but uh, I'm, I'm having the opposite feeling. Good. Excellent. I'm going to just ride with that. Atonic. Yeah. Just go on. The, the question always for, for me, who have, has not had the success that you have in, in building a life that you know allows for these things, is like, how do you get back? How do yeah. I manage to bring my family here? I have no answers to that. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. I think, you know, uh, 
when my kids were younger, you know, we'd take them uh, out of school for two months, and uh, we just did it. And the school, you know, it worked fine until the last one trip we did was when my older kid was in grade 10 or grade 11. Yeah, it, the school had trouble coping with averaging the marks when three of the tests had been missed. It really, it was fine until then. And, you know, they seem to still be fine. You know, the oldest one was 31 and he's, you know, on some postdoctoral fellowship at Oxford and, you know, it didn't do him any harm to trail after his parents and buses in northern Laos or whatever. I mean, they're okay, you know. And also, the thing is, they learned to talk to people of every age and stage mm. because, you know, they'd meet people. And so that, that whole sort of picking up and saying, oh, where are you coming? Where are you from? And, oh, where are you headed? And, yeah. you know, and just being the capacity to be interested in whoever comes across your path. I think that's a huge thing that's a traveler reflex. And they got that not because anyone told them to have it, but it was how they survived. That and the Lego, you know. Did they do a gap year or go backpacking or... They weren't at all interested in doing any of that. Yeah. Because they, they didn't have any pent-up travel desire. You know, they just motored straight on through whatever they were doing. And we're, yeah. we're happily in Toronto and yeah, not, whatever. not yeah. feeling the need. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Thing, you I, know. I, do, I do kind of agree that a lot of the traumas that they're trying to avoid inflicting on their children are actually just missed lessons that, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, this shit is not going to kill... No. The children, and I will say the pressures that schools place on children, the vices, the clamping <laughs> mechanisms they have are uh, are impressive. And, and uh, I guess the question that you really have to face is whether you're going to call their bluff, but they they make it very clear. And it, and I think that's especially true in New York where probably... I mean, your kid gets kicked out if your kid isn't there. Yeah, they can do that. I mean, and that's... Well, Toronto is a much more benign place. Uh, you know, yeah, we're a very we're, provincial little place and nobody's sort of doing that kind of... Right, you, you know? have your, that Canadian nice uh, <laughs> going for you. Right. It does feel like, um, yeah, they, they are just kind of daring you. Now, most... Most of the time, it's for like, you know, people going on bullshit ski vacations and things mm-hmm. that I wouldn't necessarily identify with blowing up uh, your relationship with a kid's school for. But yeah, that idea of just, I mean, how fabulous to just have mm-hmm. your kids away for a couple months. Cause yeah, late November till, you know, it's really better to re enter when other kids re enter. So maybe middle November to re entry after Christmas. My so everybody God. comes back together. And did, people must have just hated you guys for they didn't even know. take them out. They didn't even know. I mean, we live in a midwinter. Com- everybody's suffering downtown. in yeah, Toronto. Yeah. They don't even know, though. You know, it's a. You come back tan, nah. smelling of lob. You sure they had no idea <laughs> what you guys were up to? I mean, I would, I would, I would just, uh, yeah. Be, and so the kids would have their math, and you know that's the main thing you have to do. And so we'd say, well, you know, why don't you get it over with? And so we'd be somewhere first week, and I'd say, why don't you get it over with? And they'd say, do all the math for six weeks or eight weeks in the first week, and then it's done, and then they don't have to do any homework. It's pretty simple. And then they get to do, play chess or explore things. I don't know. I think the free time is really valuable. I think kids need free time. I think as adults, we need free time. And how to figure that out? And I'm talking like an entitled person. And, but you can figure it out by saying, well, I don't need all the things that jammed up time produces. I, yeah. I, will, I choose to do without some of those, you know, extras in order to have free time. Tell me about this book that you're working on now. The next one, which, which strikes me as unusual, right? You know, the, the first two books that I worked on, co-authored with my now ex, were on flatbreads and then rice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is there anything more 
staple than a flat, than flatbreads and basic and kind of unglamorous, right? And <laughs> this book, um, so now working on my own on Burma and Persia, this book is not a regional book. It's back to uh, an essential, and in this case, it's. But it's going to sound so flat. In this case, it's salt. And it's not because I'm wanting people to be eating handfuls of salt. It's because salt is, we all have to have it to survive. And there have been books about salt, like Mark Kurlansky's book. But I don't want to write paragraphs and paragraphs about salt. I mean, I find it fascinating. I could go on forever. I won't, I promise. We need it to survive because our bodies need salt. But also, everywhere in the world, there's fallow seasons. There's seasons where, you know, either it doesn't rain or it's too cold or whatever. And so we need to preserve food for those seasons. And salt has been one of the great tools for doing that. So whether it's your beans in Japan that turn into miso and natto and all of that, or, or whether it's salt cod because you want to eat fish on Fridays if you're a Catholic in Europe and um, the fish is not going to survive its trip into the mountains, so if you don't live on the sea, you have to have salt fish, um, or whether it's just generally salt fish in Thailand or India or anywhere. And then, of course, dairy, all of that cheese. Of course, I'm going to have stories about salt and blah, 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 but also um, recipes for salt, simple salt-preserved things like wonderful Moroccan lemons, you know, mm. salt-preserved, um, and herbe salée and uh, onion salé, which is a, um, an Acadian thing from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Um, but I also mainly it'll be recipes using things you can buy in the store, but that are things that go way back that are salted ingredients. So it's, and you're going to be somehow then connecting the pleasure of salt mm-hmm. and what it gives you with this kind of anthropological evolutionary story of yeah, our and relationship I, and I, with it. And I, and I just want to not be heavy-handed, and, and that's of course the trick. So I thought that the way to start by not being heavy-handed is with the title, so my working title, and I don't know if the publisher is going to you know, long-term agree. I mean, they want the book, oh that's nice, I'm glad, but is a joy of salt. That's the, thought, you know, that's the working that's title. That's great. So and it's then, not the joy then, of sex, it's no, the joy, joy of salt. salt. Well, let's go there, right? Um, because there's so much fear around. Um, but if you, and salt, of course, is a tool for coercion, a way of, you know, tax people in France and create the French Revolution or try to control India until Gandhi says, no, British, don't be ridiculous. That was, just gonna, that was the salt. That, that was, was related salt. to salt. Yeah, because the British said, no, you can't make your own salt. You can't go to the sea and dry the seawater out. You have to buy salt from us and you have to pay a salt tax. Oh, wow. And uh, so Gandhi said, screw you. And the salt march walked, walked in Gujarat to the edge of the sea and, you know. And so, and the Venetians got rich on salt. There's all these stories. And I want to go, and so I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, you know, a year and a half, basically, and letting my mind drift, probably too much. Somebody wrote to me recently about a very nice woman named Carolyn Watanabe, whom I'm in touch with on Instagram. And she lives on the Noto Peninsula. And mm. you know, there's salt gathering on the shore of the Noto Peninsula. She said she lives up in the, in the hills. And she said traditionally the villages up in the hills that grew rice, they intermarried the kids with someone from the flat so they could trade rice for salt. Because they were amazing. equally valuable, right? Wow. So there's an 
endless amount of stories yeah. of it in various places. I love that idea of like forced ingredient marriages. I mean, like I guess my parents, you know, like <laughs> Jews what and were Germans. They there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just trading briskets uh, or, yeah, or yeah. something among mm-hmm. each other. But it's like you know, we're the people with uh, you know peanut butter. You got to go marry somebody from the chocolate tribe. You yeah, know? there you go. <laughs> like, we're not going to have our jelly sandwich if we don't have somebody making jam. That's right? amazing. Well, I cannot wait. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I'm going to, I'm going to try to internalize some of, uh, some of your approach to the world and just get comfortable with waiting if I have to. <laughs> and just uh, treat it as serendipity. And sip, sip that margarita with the salt. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to drink to that. Okay. Naomi. Nathan. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Roads and Kingdoms. Taffy Mokanyadze is our editor. And forgive me for saying it like this, but she is a luminary in her own right. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Music is by Dan the Automator, artwork by Adele Rodriguez, and our new episode artwork by Daisy D. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week will be our final episode from Thailand for a while, sadly. We will be talking with the one and only Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. He was in town, like me, to celebrate the marriage of Chef Andy Ricker to Kunarata. We all had an excellent time very, very late into the night, and then woke up early the next morning to share some Aka Ama coffee and talk in far too warm tones about food and life. Now, for a word about Luminary Premium, our future and fabulous home for this show. It is a platform for a diverse and amazing array of podcasts that will be yours ad-free for just $7.99 a month. We have a pre-sale offer for listeners to the trip. Sign up for Luminary Premium before April 22nd through luminary.link backslash trip, and you will be enrolled to win experiences from some of Luminary's most exciting creators, like Dinner with Guy Raz, or a personalized podcast about you from Lena Dunham, or even a Brooklyn day-drinking and or day-eating crawl with yours truly. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up today. That's luminary.link backslash trip to sign up before April 22nd. Terms and conditions apply. As a bonus, you'll knock a dollar off your monthly price for the rest of the year by signing up early. No purchase is necessary. Must be 18 years or older and a resident of the continental United States. Sweepstakes ends April 22nd, 2019. Void where prohibited. We could not do this show without Luminary. We are so ready to get going to keep this moving and evolving. I hope you'll come with us. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.